Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. I'm Julie, and here we have episode 370 of Forgotten Classics, where we are reading The House of a Thousand Candles by Meredith Nicholson. First, though, let's talk about a podcast highlight. This is one I've been enjoying for a couple of months now as I sample different episodes called That Classical Podcast. It is not your usual classical podcast. It's half an hour long. It's hosted by two 20-something-year-old people, Kelly and Chris, and they love classical music, but they got awfully tired of being the only two 20-year-olds in rooms of 70-year-old people enjoying a symphony or opera or whatever. So they thought they would turn to one of their favorite things to try and raise a little more enthusiasm and possibly a little more similar company. And so they're doing a podcast. And I say they're doing a podcast as if it's new. They've got about 30 episodes and they've been doing this for a couple of years. So it started off as many do every week and then it gradually settled into once a month, which is not a problem. It, if you're like me, discovering the back catalog, it allows you to just go through and listen a lot. <laughs> and that's what I've been doing. They're a lot of fun because not only do they just love the music and have a real knack for simple explanations, but they're, they're just really funny. They have little things like if they're doing a composer, they do a 60 second summary of his life. So they try to cram everything into 60 seconds while the other one times them. I mean, Kelly can really talk fast, so fast sometimes I can't even understand her. But then they'll slow down and talk about the most interesting bits. And they don't play very long samples, I think because of copyright issues. I think they could probably play longer because it's a podcast, but I don't know. Anyway, it doesn't matter. But what they do is have a Spotify list. So everything that they've talked about, they'll have on their list. So you can just turn that playlist on and let it go and see what you like. They also, <laughs> I know I said they're funny, but I just laugh thinking of the way they talk about some things because <laughs> one of the examples was Kelly one time was like, well, we all know this is a goblin friendly zone. If you're a goblin, come on in. Because every time she talks about opera, it seems like there's somebody else who's got something about a goblin king, somebody who married a goblin. There's a lot of goblin centric music, evidently. Anyway, that's really beside the point, except it's one of the things that makes me laugh. They also will skip back and forth between topics on different episodes. So one of them may feature a couple of composers. The next one may feature a sort of music like what's a concerto? What's a symphony? Let's focus on this instrument. When they do that, of course, they're talking about the composers. They're talking about the pieces of music. And you listen and you realize Oh my goodness, these are all pieces of music I know and love, whether just from hearing classical music or from advertisements or music or all the other things in our world. It makes me want to go listen to more. So mission accomplished, you guys. Then also what it does is focus you on music, of course, that you didn't know. And that tends to be a lot of the newer music for me. I wind up thinking, oh no, it's another one about modern composers. 
but I always like at least half of the stuff that's mentioned in those. So there's a lot of variety. And as I say, really highly enjoyable. That classical podcast, I've got the link in my show notes. Now, let's talk about last time, those three chapters of The House of a Thousand Candles. Wait, what did we find out that's new? Almost nothing, am I right? Oh my goodness. Okay, I know I picked the book. I know I'm the one saying how it's great and you should listen to it. But I have to say, when I got done listening, I was going, wow, I enjoyed listening, but it's just kind of like an expansion on the previous two or three chapters. You know, we do find out Miss Red Tam O'Shanter's name is Miss Armstrong because there's an apologetic note sent about her bothering people. We do meet the Reverend Paul Stoddard, though we've heard of him before because he was talking to somebody over the wall. I think that's the only new stuff, and that's not much. You know, oh, your grandfather wanted you to learn more about architecture and learn about the house yourself. Well, duh. Yeah, we already knew that, but this was more in-depth on that. Bates, we don't trust him. Yeah, we didn't trust him before. We just don't trust him even more now. Morgan, oh my gosh, what is up with this guy? He is so brazen. I loved the shootout, though. That was one of the best things ever. I was like, oh my gosh, are they actually having like a Western style shootout down in the basement? What happened just now? I loved it. It wasn't anything new because before they were throwing things at each other, insults and what, axes and stuff. So that's just an escalation. We did discover that Pickering and Morgan are now connected. Morgan was apologizing to Pickering. Pickering, if you recall, is the lawyer who we don't trust either, who's the executor on the grandfather's will. We really don't trust Pickering. But we already didn't trust Morgan. We just didn't know he was connected. So I'm going to say this is a slower paced book. <laughs> we kind of knew that already. And more will happen this time. I swear. I promise. But I like it anyway. I think it's funny. I like the atmosphere. I like the little town and the house and the wondering about the ghost who seems to trip over his own feet. So probably not a ghost, even though we can't find anyone. So I hope you're liking it too. And like I say, there's at least one thing we find out next time. So let's get to it. Let's dive in. Chapter 12. I Explore a Passage. Bates. I found him busy replenishing the candlesticks in the library. It seemed to me that he was always poking about with an armful of candles. There are a good many queer things in this world, but I guess you're one of the queerest. I don't mind telling you that there are times when I think you a thoroughly bad lot, and then again I question my judgment and don't give you credit for being much more than a doddering fool." He was standing on a ladder beneath the great crystal chandelier that hung from the centre of the ceiling, and looked down upon me with that patient injury that is so appealing in a dog, in, say, the eyes of an Irish setter, when you accidentally step on his tail. That look is heartbreaking in a setter, but seen in a man it arouses the direst homicidal feelings of which I am capable. 
"'Yes, Mr. Glenarm,' he replied humbly. "'Now I want you to grasp this idea that I'm going to dig into this old shell, top and bottom. I'm going to blow it up with dynamite, if I please. And if I catch you spying on me, or reporting my doings to my enemies, or engaging in any questionable performances whatever, I'll hang you between the posts out there in the school wall. Do you understand?' so that the sweet sisters of St. Agatha and the dear little schoolgirls and the chaplain and all the rest will shudder through all their lives at the very thought of you. Certainly, Mr. Glenarm. And his tone was the same he would have used if I had asked him to pass me the matches, and under my breath I consigned him to the harshest tortures of the fiery pit. Now, as to Morgan. Yes, sir. What possible business do you suppose he has with Mr. Pickering? I demanded. Why, sir, that's clear enough. Mr. Pickering owns a house up the lake. He got it through your grandfather. Morgan has the care of it, sir. Very plausible, indeed. And I sent him off to his work. After luncheon I went below, and directly to the end of the corridor, and began to sound the walls. To the eye they were all alike, being of cement, and substantial enough. Through the area window I saw the solid earth and snow. Surely there was little here to base hope upon, and my wonder grew at the ease with which Morgan had vanished through a barred window and into frozen ground. The walls at the end of the passage were as solid as rock, and they responded dully to the stroke of the hammer. I sounded them on both sides, retracing my steps to the stairway, becoming more and more impatient at my ill-luck or stupidity. There was every reason why I should know my own house, and yet a stranger and an outlaw ran through it with amazing daring. After an hour's idle search I returned to the end of the corridor, repeated all my previous soundings, and, I fear, indulged in language unbecoming a gentleman. Then, in my blind anger, I found what patient search had not disclosed. I threw the hammer from me in a fit of temper. It struck upon a large square in the cement floor, which gave forth a hollow sound. I was on my knees in an instant, my fingers searching the cracks, and drawing down close, I could feel a current of air, slight but unmistakable, against my face. The cement square, though exactly like the others in the cellar floor, was evidently only a wooden imitation, covering an opening beneath. The block was fitted into its place, with a nicety that certified to the skill of the hand that had adjusted it. I broke a blade of my pocket-knife, trying to pry it up, but in a moment I succeeded, and found it to be in reality a trap-door, hinged to the substantial part of the floor. A current of cool, fresh air, the same that had surprised me in the night, struck my face as I lay flat and peered into the opening. The lower passage was as black as pitch, and I lighted a lantern I had brought with me, found that wooden steps gave safe conduct below, and went down. I stood erect in the passage, and had several inches to spare. It extended both ways, running back under the foundations of the house. This lower passage cut squarely under the park before the house, and toward the school wall. No wonder my grandfather had brought foreign laborers, who could speak no English, to work on his house. There was something delightful in the largeness of his scheme, and I hurried through the tunnel with a hundred questions tormenting my brain. The air grew steadily fresher, until, after I had gone about two hundred yards, I reached a point where the wind seemed to beat down upon me from above. I put up my hands and found two openings, about two yards apart, through which the air sucked steadily. I moved out of the current with a chuckle in my throat and a grin on my face. I had passed under the gate in the school wall, and I knew now why the piers that held it had been so high. They were hollow, and were the means of sending fresh air into the tunnel. I had traversed about twenty yards more, 
when I felt a slight vibration accompanied by a muffled roar, and almost immediately came to a short wooden stair that marked the end of the passage. I had no means of judging directions, but I assumed I was somewhere near the chapel in the school grounds. I climbed the steps, noting still the vibration, and found a door that yielded readily to pressure. In a moment I stood blinking, lantern in hand, in a well-lighted, floored room. Overhead the tumult and thunder of an organ explained the tremor and roar I had heard below. I was in the crypt of St. Agatha's Chapel. The inside of the door by which I had entered was a part of the wainscoting of the room, and the opening was wholly covered with a map of the Holy Land. In my absorption I had lost the sense of time, and I was amazed to find that it was five o'clock, but I resolved to go into the chapel before going home. The way up was clear enough, and I was soon in the vestibule. I opened the door, expecting to find a service in progress, but the little church was empty, save where, at the right of the chancel, an organist was filling the church with the notes of a triumphant march. Cap in hand, I stole forward, and I sank down in one of the pews. A lamp over the organ keyboard gave the only light in the chapel, and made an aureole around her head, about the uncovered head of Olivia Gladys Armstrong. I smiled as I recognized her, and smiled, too, as I remembered her name. But the joy she brought to the music, the happiness in her face as she raised it in the minor harmonies, her isolation marked by the little aisle of light against the dark background of the choir, these things touched and moved me, and I bent forward, my arms upon the pew in front of me, watching and listening with a kind of awed wonder. Here was a refuge of peace and lulling harmony after the disturbed life at Glenarm, and I yielded myself to its solace with an inclination my life had rarely known. There was no pause in the outpouring of the melody. She changed stops and manuals with swift fingers, and passed from one composition to another. Now it was an august hymn, now a theme from Wagner, and finally Mendelssohn's spring-song leaped forth exultant in the dark chapel. She ceased suddenly, with a little sigh, and struck her hands together, for the place was cold. As she reached up to put out the lights, I stepped forward to the chancel steps. "'Please allow me to do that for you.' She turned toward me, gathering a cape about her. "'Oh, it's you, is it?' she asked, looking about quickly. "'I don't remember—I don't seem to remember that you were invited.' "'I didn't know I was coming myself,' I remarked truthfully, lifting my hand to the lamp. "'That is my opinion of you, that you're a rather unexpected person. But thank you very much.' She showed no disposition to prolong the interview, but hurried toward the door, and reached the vestibule before I came up with her. "'You can't go any further, Mr. Glenarm,' she said, and waited as though to make sure I understood. Straight before us, through the wood, and beyond the school buildings, the sunset faded sullenly. The night was following fast upon the grey twilight, and already the bolder planets were aflame in the sky. The path led straight ahead, beneath the black boughs. "'I might perhaps walk to the dormitory, or whatever you call it,' I said. "'Thank you, no. I'm late and haven't time to bother with you. It's against the rules, you know, for us to receive visitors.' She stepped out into the path. "'But I'm not a caller. I'm just a neighbor, and I owe you several calls, anyhow.' She laughed, but did not pause, and I followed a pace behind her. "'I hope you don't think for a minute that I chased a rabbit on your side of the fence just to meet you. Do you, Mr. Glenarm?' be it far from me i'm glad i came though for i liked your music immensely i'm in earnest i think it quite wonderful miss armstrong she paid no heed to me 
and I hope I may promise myself the pleasure of hearing you often. You are positively flattering, Mr. Glenarm, but as I'm going away— I felt my heart sink at the thought of her going away. She was the only amusing person I had met at Glenarm, and the idea of losing her gave a darker note to the bleak landscape. That's really too bad, and just when we were getting acquainted, and I was coming to church every Sunday to hear you play, and to pray for snow, so you'd come over often to chase rabbits. This, I thought, softened her heart. At any rate, her tone changed. I don't play for services. They're afraid to let me, for fear I'd run comic opera tunes into the tedium. How shocking! Do you know, Mr. Glenarm? Her tone became confidential, and her pace slackened. We call you the squire at St. Agatha's, the lord of the manor, and names like that. All the girls are perfectly crazy about you. They'd be wild if they thought I talked with you clandestinely. Is that the way you pronounce it? Anything you say, in any way you say it, satisfies me, I replied. That's ever so nice of you, she said, mockingly again. I felt foolish and guilty. She would probably get roundly scolded if the grave sisters learned of her talks with me, and very likely I should win their hearty contempt. But I did not turn back. I hope the reason you're leaving isn't— I hesitated. Ill conduct? Oh, yes, I'm terribly wicked, Squire Glenarm. They're sending me off. But I suppose they're awfully strict, the sisters. They're hideous, perfectly hideous. Where is your home? I demanded. Chicago, Indianapolis, Cincinnati, perhaps? Humph! You are dull. You ought to know from my accent that I'm not from Chicago, and I hope I haven't a Kentucky girl's air of waiting to be flattered to death, and no Indianapolis girl would talk to a strange man at the edge of a deep wood in the gray twilight of a winter day. That's from a book. And the Cincinnati girl is without my élan, esprit, whatever you please to call it. She has more Teutonic repose, more of Gretchen of the Rhine Valley about her. Don't you adore French, Squire Glenarm? She concluded breathlessly, and with no pause in her quick step. I adore yours, Miss Armstrong, I asserted, yielding myself further to the joy of idiocy, and delighting in the mockery and changing moods of her talk. I did not make her out. Indeed, I preferred not to. I was not then, and I am not now, thank God, of an analytical turn of mind. And as I grow older, I prefer, even after many a blow, to take my fellow human beings a good deal as I find them, and as for women, old or young, I envy no man his gift of resolving them into elements. As well carry a spray of arbutus to the laboratory, or subject the enchantment of moonlight upon running water to the flame and blowpipe as try to analyze the heart of a girl, particularly a girl who paddles a canoe with a sure stroke and puts up a good race with a rabbit. A lamp shone ahead of us at the entrance of one of the houses, and lights appeared in all the buildings. If I knew your window, I should certainly sing under it, except that you're going home. You didn't tell me why they were deporting you. I'm really ashamed to. You would never— Oh, yes, I would. I'm really an old friend, I insisted, feeling more like an idiot every minute. Well, don't tell. But they caught me flirting with the grocery boy. Now, aren't you disgusted? Thoroughly. I can't believe it. Why, you'd a lot better flirt with me. I suggested boldly. Well, I'm to be sent away for good at Christmas. I may come back then if I can square myself. My, that's slang. Isn't it horrid? The sisters don't like slang, I suppose. They loathe it. Miss Devereux, you know who she is. She spies on us and tells. You don't say so. But I'm not surprised at her. I've heard about her. 
I declared bitterly. We had reached the door, and I expected her to fly, but she lingered a moment. "'Oh, if you know her, perhaps you're a spy, too. It's just as well. We should never meet again, Mr. Glenarm,' she declared haughtily. "'The memory of these few meetings will always linger with me, Miss Armstrong,' I returned, in an imitation of her own tone. "'I shall scorn to remember you,' and she folded her arms under the cloak tragically. "'Our meetings have been all too few, Miss Armstrong. Three, exactly, I believe.' "'I see you prefer to ignore the first time I ever saw you,' she said, her hand on the door. "'Out there in your canoe? Never. And you've forgiven me for overhearing you and the chaplain on the wall. Please?' She grasped the knob of the door and paused an instant, as though pondering. "'I make it four times, not counting once in the road, and other times when you didn't know, Squire Glenarm. I'm a foolish little girl to have remembered the first. I see now how B-L-I-N-D I have been.' She opened and closed the door softly, and I heard her running up the steps within. I ran back to the chapel, roundly abusing myself for having neglected my more serious affairs for a bit of silly talk with a schoolgirl, fearful lest the openings I had left at both ends of the passage should have been discovered. The tunnel added a new and puzzling factor to the problem already before me, and I was eager for an opportunity to sit down in peace and comfort to study the situation. At the chapel I narrowly escaped running into Stoddard, but I slipped past him, pulled the hidden door into place, traversed the tunnel without incident, and soon climbed through the hatchway and slammed the false block securely into the opening. CHAPTER Thirteen: A PAIR OF EAVESDROPPERS When I came down after dressing for dinner, Bates called my attention to a belated mail. I pounced eagerly upon a letter in Laurence Donovan's well-known hand, bearing to my surprise an American stamp and postmarked New Orleans. It was dated, however, at Veracruz, Mexico, December fifteenth, 1901. Dear old man, I have had a merry time since I saw you in New York. Couldn't get away for a European port as I hoped when I left you, as the authorities seemed to be taking my case seriously, and I was lucky to get off as a deckhand on a southbound boat. I expected to get a slice of English prodigal veal at Christmas, but as things stand now, I am grateful to be loose, even in this godforsaken hole. The British bulldog is eager to insert its teeth in my trousers, and I was flattered to see my picture bulletined in a conspicuous place the day I struck Veracruz. You see, they're badgering the government at home because I'm not apprehended, and they've got to catch and hang me to show that they've really got their hands on the Irish situation. I'm not afraid of the greasers. No people who gorge themselves with bananas and red peppers can be dangerous. But the British consul here has a bad eye, and even as I write I am dimly conscious that a sleek person who is ostensibly engaged in literary work at the next table is really killing time while he waits for me to finish this screed. No doubt you are peacefully settled on your ancestral estate, with only a few months and a little patience between you and your grandfather Shire. You always were a lucky brute. People die just to leave you money, whereas I'll have to die to get out of jail. I hope to land under the stars and stripes within a few days, either across country through El Paso, or via New Orleans, preferably the former, as a man's social status is rated high in Texas, in proportion to the amount of reward that's out for him. They'd probably give me the freedom of the state if they knew my crimes had been the subject of a debate in the House of Commons. But the man across the table is casually looking over here for a glimpse of my signature, so I must give him a good one just for fun. With best wishes always, faithfully yours, George Washington Smith. P.S. I shan't mail this here, but give it to a red-haired Irishman on a steamer that sails north to-night. 
pleasant i must say this eternal dodging wish i could share your rural paradise for the length of a pipe in a bottle have forgotten whether you said indian territory or indiana but will take chances on the latter as more remotely suggesting the aborigines bates gave me my coffee in the library as i wished to settle down to an evening of reflection without delay larry's report of himself was not reassuring i knew that if he had any idea of trying to reach me he would not mention it in a letter which might fall into the hands of the authorities and the hope that he might join me grew i was not perhaps entitled to a companion at glenarm under the terms of my exile but as a matter of protection in the existing condition of affairs there could be no legal or moral reason why i should not defend myself against my foes and larry was an ally worth having in all my hours of questioning and anxiety at glenarm i never doubted the amiable intentions of my grandfather his device for compelling my residence at his absurd house was in keeping with his character and it was all equitable enough but his dead hand had no control over the strange issue and i felt justified in interpreting the will in the light of my experiences i certainly did not intend to appeal to the local police authorities at least not until the animus of the attack on me was determined my neighbor the chaplain had inadvertently given me a bit of important news and my mind kept reverting to the fact that morgan was reporting his injury to the executor of my grandfather's estate in new york everything else that had happened was tame and unimportant compared with this why had john marshall glenarm made arthur pickering the executor of his estate he knew that i detested him that pickering's noble aims and high ambitions had been praised by my family until his very name sickened me and yet my own grandfather had thought it wise to entrust his fortune and my future to the man of all men who was most repugnant to me i rose and paced the floor in anger instead of accepting pickering's word for it that the will was all straight i should have employed counsel and taken legal advice before suffering myself to be rushed away into a part of the world i had never visited before and cooped up in a dreary house under the eye of a sombre scoundrel who might poison me any day if he did not prefer to shoot me in my sleep my rage must fasten upon some one and bates was the nearest target for it i went to the kitchen where he usually spent his evenings to vent my feelings upon him only to find him gone i climbed to his room and found it empty very likely he was off condoling with his friend and fellow conspirator the caretaker and i fumed with rage and disappointment i was thoroughly tired as tired as on days when i had beaten my way through tropical jungles without food or water but i wished in my impotent anger against i knew not what agencies to punish myself to induce an utter weariness that would drag me exhausted to bed the snow in the highway was well beaten down and i swung off countryward past st agatha's a gray mist hung over the fields in whirling clouds breaking away occasionally and showing the throbbing winter stars the walk and my interest in the alternation of star-lighted and mist-wrapped landscape won me to a better state of mind and after tramping a couple of miles i set out for home several times on my tramp i had caught myself whistling the air of a majestic old hymn and smiled remembering my young friend olivia and her playing in the chapel she was an amusing child the thought of her further lifted my spirit and i turned into the school park as i passed the outer gate with a half-recognized wish to pass near the barracks where she spent her days at the school gate the lamps of a carriage suddenly blurred in the mist carriages were not common in this region and i was not surprised to find that this was the familiar village hack that met trains day and night at glenarm station some parent i conjectured paying a visit to st agatha's perhaps the father of miss olivia gladys armstrong had come to carry her home 
for a stricter discipline than St. Teresa's school afforded. The driver sat asleep on his box, and I passed him and went on into the grounds. A whim seized me to visit the crypt of the chapel and examine the opening to the tunnel. As I passed the little group of school buildings, a man came hurriedly from one of them and turned toward the chapel. I first thought it was Stoddard, but I could not make him out in the mist, and I waited for him to put twenty paces between us before I followed along the path that led from the school to the chapel. He strode into the chapel porch with an air of assurance, and I heard him address someone who had been waiting. The mist was now so heavy that I could not see my hand before my face, and I stole forward until I could hear the voices of the two men distinctly. "'Bates!' "'Yes, sir.' I heard feet scraping on the stone floor of the porch. "'This is a devil of a place to talk in, but it's the best we can do. Did the young man know I sent for you?' "'No, sir. He was quite busy with his books and papers.' Humph. We can never be sure of him. I suppose that is correct, sir. Well, you and Morgan are a fine pair, I must say. I thought he had some sense, and that you'd see to it that he didn't make a mess of this thing. He's in bed now with a hole in his arm, and you've got to go on alone. I'll do my best, Mr. Pickering. Don't call me by that name, you idiot. We're not advertising our business from the housetops. Certainly not, replied Bates humbly. The blood was roaring through my head, and my hands were clenched as I stood there listening to this colloquy. Pickering's voice was, and is, unmistakable. There was always a purring softness in it. He used to remind me at school of a sleek, complacent cat, and I hate cats with a particular loathing. "'Is Morgan lying or not when he says he shot himself accidentally?' demanded Pickering petulantly. "'I only know what I heard from the gardener here at the school.' "'You'll understand, I hope, that I can't be seen going to Morgan's house.' "'Of course not. But he says you haven't played fair with him, that you even attacked him a few days after Glenarm came.' "'Yes, and he hit me over the head with a club. It was his indiscretion, sir. He wanted to go through the library in broad daylight, and it wasn't any use anyhow. There's nothing there.' "'But I don't like the looks of this shooting. Morgan's sick and out of his head. But a fellow like Morgan isn't likely to shoot himself accidentally.' and now it's done the work stopped and the time is running on what do you think glenarm suspects i can't tell sir but mighty little i should say the shot through the window the first night he was here seemed to shake him a trifle but he's quite settled down now i should say sir he probably doesn't spend much time on this side of the fence doesn't haunt the chapel i fancy lord no sir i hardly suspect the young gentleman of being a praying man you haven't seen him prowling about analyzing the architecture not a bit of it, sir. He hasn't, I should say, what his revered grandfather called the analytical mind. Hearing yourself discussed in this frank fashion by your own servant is, I suppose, a wholesome thing for the spirit. The man who stands behind your chair may acquire, in time, some special knowledge of your mental processes by a diligent study of the back of your head. But I was not half so angry with these conspirators as with myself, for ever having entertained a single generous thought towards Bates. It was, however, consoling to know that Morgan was lying to Pickering, and that my own exploits in the house were unknown to the executor. Pickering stamped his feet upon the paved porch floor in a way that I remembered of old. It marked a conclusion, and preluded serious statements. "'Now, Bates,' he said, with a ring of authority, and speaking in a louder key than he had yet used, "'it's your duty, under all the circumstances, to help discover the hidden assets of the estate.' We've got to pluck the mystery from that architectural monster over there, and the time for doing it is short enough. Mr. Glenarm was a rich man. 
to my own knowledge he had a couple of millions and he couldn't have spent it all on that house he reduced his bank account to a few thousand dollars and swept out his safety vault boxes with a broom before his last trip into vermont he didn't die with the stuff in his clothes did he lord bless me no sir there was little enough cash to bury him with you out of the country and me alone with him he was a crank and i suppose he got a lot of satisfaction out of concealing his money but this hunt for it isn't funny i supposed of course we dig it up before glenarm got here or i shouldn't have been in such a hurry to send for him but it's over there somewhere or in the grounds there must be a plan of the house that would help i'll give you a thousand dollars the day you wire me you have found any sort of clue thank you sir i don't want thanks i want the money or securities or whatever it is i've got to get back to my car now and you'd better skip home you needn't tell your young master that i've been here i was trying hard to believe as i stood there with clenched hands outside the chapel porch that arthur pickering's name was written in the list of directors of one of the greatest trust companies in america and that he belonged to the most exclusive clubs in new york i had run out for a walk with only an inverness over my dinner jacket and i was thoroughly chilled by the cold mist i was experiencing too an inner cold as i reflected upon the greed and perfidy of the man keep an eye on morgan said pickering certainly sir and be careful what you write or wire i'll mind those points sir but i'd suggest if you please sir well demanded pickering impatiently that you should call at the house it would look rather strange to the young gentleman if you'd come here and not see him i haven't the slightest errand with him and besides i haven't the time if he learns that i've been here you may say that my business was with sister teresa and that i regret it very much not having an opportunity to call on him the irony of this was not lost on bates who chuckled softly he came out into the open and turned away toward the glenarm gate pickering passed me so near that i might have put out my hand and touched him and in a moment i heard the carriage drive off rapidly toward the village i heard bates running home over the snow and listened to the clatter of the village hack as it bore pickering back to annandale then out of the depths of the chapel porch out of the depths of time and space it seemed so dazed i stood some one came swiftly toward me some one light of foot like a woman ran down the walk a little way into the fog and paused an exclamation broke from me eavesdropping for two it was the voice of olivia i take pretty good care of myself if i were you squire glenarm good-night good-bye i faltered as she sped away into the mist toward the school chapter fourteen the girl in gray my first thought was to find the crypt door and return through the tunnel before bates reached the house the chapel was open and by lighting matches i found my way to the map and panel i slipped through and closed the opening then ran through the passage with gratitude for the generous builder who had given it a clear floor and an ample roof in my haste i miscalculated its length and pitched into the steps under the trap at a speed that sent me sprawling in a moment more i had jammed the trap into place and was running up the cellar steps breathless with my cap smashed down over my eyes i heard bates at the rear of the house and knew i had won the race by a scratch there was but a moment in which to throw my coat and cap under the divan slap the dust from my clothes and seat myself at the great table where the candles blazed tranquilly bates's step was as steady as ever there was not the slightest hint of excitement in it as he came and stood within the door beg pardon mr glenarm did you wish anything sir oh no thank you bates 
I had stepped down to the village, sir, to speak to the grocer. The eggs he sent this morning were not quite up to the mark. I have warned him not to send any of the storage article to this house. That's right, Bates. I folded my arms to hide my hands, which were black from contact with the passage, and faced my manservant. My respect for his rascally powers had increased immensely since he gave me my coffee. A contest with so clever a rogue was worth while. "'I'm grateful for your good care of me, Bates. I had expected to perish of discomfort out here. But you are treating me like a lord.' "'Thank you, Mr. Glenarm. I do what I can, sir.' He brought fresh candles for the table candelabra, going about with his accustomed noiseless step. I felt a cold chill creep down my spine as he passed behind me on these errands. His transition from the role of conspirator to that of my flawless servant was almost too abrupt. I dismissed him as quickly as possible, and listened to his step through the halls as he went about locking the doors. This was a regular incident, but I was aware to-night that he exercised what seemed to me a particular care in settling the bolts. The locking-up process had rather bored me before. To-night the snapping of bolts was particularly trying. When I heard Bates climbing to his own quarters, I quietly went the rounds on my own account and found everything as tight as a drum. In the cellar I took occasion to roll some barrels of cement into the end of the corridor, to cover and block the trap-door. Bates had no manner of business in that part of the house, as the heating apparatus was under the kitchen and accessible by an independent stairway. I had no immediate use for the hidden passage to the chapel, and I did not intend that my enemies should avail themselves of it. Morgan, at least, knew of it, and while he was not likely to trouble me at once, I had resolved to guard every point in our pleasant game. I was tired enough to sleep when I went to my room, and after an eventless night woke to a clear day and keener air. "'I'm going to take a little run into the village, Bates,' I remarked at breakfast. "'Very good, sir. The weather's quite cleared.' "'If anyone should call, I'll be back in an hour or so.' "'Yes, sir.' He turned his impenetrable face toward me as I rose. There was, of course, no chance whatever that any one would call to see me. The Reverend Paul Stardard was the only human being except Bates, Morgan, and the man who brought up my baggage, who had crossed the threshold since my arrival. I really had an errand in the village. I wished to visit the hardware store and buy some cartridges, but Pickering's presence in the community was a disturbing factor in my mind. I wished to get sight of him, to meet him if possible, and see how a man, whose schemes were so deep, looked in the light of day. As I left the grounds and gained the highway, Stoddard fell in with me. "'Well, Mr. Glenarm, I'm glad to see you abroad so early. With that library of yours, the temptation must be strong to stay within doors. But a man's got to subject himself to the sun and wind. Even a good wedding now and then is salutary.' "'I try to get out every day,' I answered. "'But I've chiefly limited myself to the grounds.' "'Well, it's a fine estate. The lake is altogether charming in summer. I quite envy you your fortune.' He walked with a long stringing stride, his hands thrust deep into his overcoat pockets. It was difficult to accept the idea of so much physical strength being wasted in the mere business of saying prayers in a girl's school. Here was a fellow who should have been captain of a ship or a soldier, a leader of forlorn hopes. I felt sure there must be a weakness of some sort in him. Quite possibly it would prove to be a mild asceticism that delighted in the savor of incense and the mournful cadence of choral vespers. He declined a cigar, and this rather increased my suspicions. The village hack, filled with young women, passed at a gallop, bound for the station, 
and we took off our hats. "'Christmas holidays,' explained the chaplain. "'Practically all the students go home. "'Lucky kids to have a Christmas to go home to. "'I suppose Mr. Pickering got away last night,' he observed, "'and my pulse quickened at the name. "'I haven't seen him yet,' I answered guardedly. "'Then, of course, he hasn't gone.' "'And these words, uttered in the big clergyman's deep tones, "'seemed wholly plausible.' There was, to be sure, nothing so unlikely as that Arthur Pickering, executor of my grandfather's estate, would come to Glenarm without seeing me. Sister Teresa told me this morning he was here. He called on her and Miss Devereux last night. I haven't seen him myself. I thought possibly I might run into him in the village. His car's very likely on the station switch. No doubt we shall find him there, I answered easily. The Annandale station presented an appearance of unusual gaiety when we reached the main street of the village. There, to be sure, lay a private car on the siding, and on the platform was a group of twenty or more girls, with several of the brown-habited sisters of St. Agatha. There was something a little foreign in the picture, the girls in their bright colors talking gaily, the sisters in their somber garb hovering about, suggesting France or Italy rather than Indiana. "'I came here with the idea that St. Agatha's was a charity school,' I remarked to the chaplain. "'Not a bit of it. Sister Teresa is really a swell, you know, and her school is hard to get into. I'm glad you warned me in time. I had thought of sending over a sack of flour occasionally, or a few bolts of calico to help in the good work. You've saved my life.' "'I probably have. I might mention your good intentions to Sister Teresa.' "'Pray don't. If there's any danger of meeting her on that platform—' "'No, she isn't coming down, I'm sure. "'But you ought to know her, if you will pardon me. "'And Miss Devereux is charming. "'But really, I don't mean to be annoying.' "'Not in the least. "'But under the circumstances, "'the will in my probationary year, you can understand.' "'Certainly. "'A man's affairs are his own, Mr. Glenarm.' "'We stepped upon the platform. "'The private car was on the opposite side of the station "'and had been switched into a siding of the east and west road. "'Pickering was certainly getting on.' The private car, even more than the yacht, is the symbol of plutocracy, and gaping rustics were evidently impressed by its grandeur. As I lounged across the platform with Stoddard, Pickering came out into the vestibule of his car, followed by two ladies and an elderly gentleman. They all descended and began a promenade of the plank walk. Pickering saw me an instant later, and came up hurriedly with an outstretched hand. "'This is indeed good fortune!' We dropped off here last night rather unexpectedly to rest a hot-box, and should have been picked up by the Midnight Express for Chicago. But there was a miscarriage of orders somewhere, and we now have to wait for the nine o'clock, and it's late. If I'd known how much behind it was, I should have run out to see you. How are things going? As smooth as a whistle. It really isn't so bad when you face it, and the fact is I'm actually at work. That's splendid. The year will go fast enough, never fear. I suppose you pine for a little human society now and then. A man can never strike the right medium in such things. In New York we are all rushed to death. I sometimes feel that I'd like a little rustication myself. I get nervous, and working for corporations is wearing. The old gentleman there is Taylor, president of the Interstate and Western. The ladies are his wife and her sister. I'd like to introduce you. He ran his eyes over my corduroys and leggings amiably. He had not in years addressed me so pleasantly. Stoddard had left me to go to the other end of the platform to speak to some of the students. I followed Pickering rather loathly to where the companions of his travels were pacing to and fro in the crisp morning air. 
I laugh still whenever I remember that morning at Annandale Station. As soon as Pickering had got me well under way in conversation with Taylor, he excused himself hurriedly and went off, as I assumed, to be sure the station agent had received orders for attaching the private car to the Chicago Express. Taylor proved to be a supercilious person. I believe they call him Chilly Billy at the Metropolitan Club, and our efforts to converse were pathetically unfruitful. He asked me the value of land in my county, and as my ignorance on this subject was vast and illimitable, I could see that he was forming a low opinion of my character and intelligence. The two ladies stood by, making no concealment of their impatience. Their eyes were upon the girls from St. Agatha's on the other platform, whom they could see beyond me. I had jumped the conversation from Indiana farmlands to the recent disorders in Bulgaria, which interested me more, when Mrs. Taylor spoke abruptly to her sister. "'That's she, the one in the grey coat, talking to the clergyman. She came a moment ago in the carriage.' "'The one with the umbrella? I thought you said—' Mrs. Taylor glanced at her sister warningly, and they both looked at me. Then they sought to detach themselves and moved away. There was someone on the farther side of the platform whom they wished to see, and Taylor, not understanding their manoeuvre, he was really anxious, I think, not to be left alone with me, started down the platform after them, I following. Mrs. Taylor and her sister walked to the end of the platform, and looked across, a biscuit toss away, to where Stoddard stood talking to the girl I had already heard described as wearing a grey coat and carrying an umbrella. The girl in grey crossed the track quickly, and addressed the two women cordially. Taylor's back was to her, and he was growing eloquent, in a mild, well-bred way, over the dullness of our statesmen in not seeing the advantages that would accrue to the United States in fostering our shipping industry. His wife, her sister, and the girl in grey were so near that I could hear plainly what they were saying. They were referring, apparently, to the girl's refusal of an invitation to accompany them to California. "'So you can't go. It's too bad.' "'We had hoped that when you really saw us on the way, you would relent,' said Mrs. Taylor. "'But there are many reasons, and above all, Sister Teresa needs me.' It was the voice of Olivia, a little lower, a little more restrained than I had known it. "'But think of the rose gardens that are waiting for us out there,' said the other lady. They were showing her the deference that elderly women always have for pretty girls. "'Alas, and again, alas!' exclaimed Olivia. "'Please don't make it harder for me than necessary.' but I gave my promise a year ago to spend these holidays in Cincinnati. She ignored me wholly, and after shaking hands with the ladies, returned to the other platform. I wondered whether she was overlooking Taylor on purpose to cut me. Taylor was still at his lecture on the needs of our American merchant marine when Pickering passed hurriedly, crossed the track, and began speaking earnestly to the girl in grey. The American flag should command the seas. What we need is not more battleships, but more freight carriers, Taylor was saying. But I was watching Olivia Gladys Armstrong, in a long skirt, with her hair caught up under a grey toque that matched her coat perfectly. She was not my Olivia of the tam who had pursued the rabbit, nor yet the unsophisticated schoolgirl who had suffered my idiotic babble, nor again the dreamy, rapt organist of the chapel, she was a grown woman, with at least twenty summers to her credit, and there was about her an air of knowing the world, and of not being at all a person one would make foolish speeches to. She spoke to Pickering gravely. Once she smiled dolefully and shook her head, and I vaguely strove to remember 
where I had seen that look in her eyes before. Her gold beads, which I had once carried in my pocket, were clasped tightly about the close collar of her dress, and I was glad, very glad, that I had ever touched anything that belonged to her. "'As the years go by, we're going to dominate trade more and more. Our manufacturers already lead the world, and what we make we've got to sell, haven't we?' demanded Taylor. "'Certainly, sir,' I answered warmly. "'Who was Olivia Gladys Armstrong, and what was Arthur Pickering's business with her? And what was it she had said to me that evening, when I had found her playing on the chapel organ? So much happened that day that I had almost forgotten, and indeed I had tried to forget that I had made a fool of myself for the edification of an amusing little schoolgirl. "'I see you prefer to ignore the first time I ever saw you,' she had said. But if I had thought of this at all, it had been with righteous self-contempt. Or I may have flattered my vanity with the reflection that she had eyed me, her hero, perhaps, with wistful admiration across the wall. Meanwhile the Chicago Express roared into Annandale, and the private car was attached. Taylor watched the trainman with the cool interest of a man for whom the proceeding had no novelty, while he continued to dilate upon the nation's commercial opportunities. I turned perforce, and walked with him back toward the station, where Mrs. Taylor and her sister were talking to the conductor. Pickering came running across the platform, with several telegrams in his hand. The express had picked up the car, and was ready to continue its westward journey. "'I'm awfully sorry, Glenarm, that our stop's so short.' and Pickering's face wore a worried look as he addressed me, his eyes on the conductor. "'How far do you go?' I asked. "'California. We have interests out there, and I have to attend some stockholders' meetings in Colorado in January.' "'Ah, you businessmen! You businessmen!' I said reproachfully. I wished to call him a blackguard then and there, and it was on my tongue to do so, but I concluded that to wait until he had shown his hand fully was the better game." The ladies entered the car, and I shook hands with Taylor, who threatened to send me his pamphlet on the needs of American shipping when he got back to New York. "'It's too bad she wouldn't go with us. Poor girl! This must be a dreary hole for her. She deserves wider horizons,' he said to Pickering, who helped him upon the platform of the car with what seemed to be unnecessary precipitation. "'You little know us,' I declared, for Pickering's benefit. "'Life at Annandale is nothing, if not exciting.' The people here are indifferent marksmen, or there'd be murders galore. Mr. Glenarm is a good deal of a wag, explained Pickering dryly, swinging himself aboard as the train started. Yes, it's my humor that keeps me alive, I responded, and taking off my hat I saluted Arthur Pickering with my broadest salaam. 